This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, executive editor. From Permanent Things, Russell Kirk's Centenary, a symposium on the conservative thinkers' enduring ideas, this is Daniel J. Mahoney on Conservatism and the Politics of Prudence, Russell Kirk on Edmund Burke. Versions of this presentation and others appear in the January 2019 issue of The New Criterion. Let me just begin with a, I, I don't normally write epigrams for essays, but I wrote three epigrams for this essay. I'll read the first one. This is from Sword of the Imagination, which has already been mentioned. All profound political movements draw their strength from some earlier body of belief. 20th century socialism from the Marx of the middle of the 19th century, Russian revolutionary violence from French Jacobinism, radical liberalism from Rousseau, whom Burke had called the insane Socrates of the National Assembly, Kirk's source of wisdom was Edmund Burke. And as I go on to say, no student of the thought or statesmanship of Edmund Burke can ignore the very considerable contribution that Kirk made to the renewal of Burkean wisdom in the 20th century. Uh, Kirk freely acknowledged that Burke was the principal source was the principal source of his own political wisdom. And from the early 1950s onward, Kirk did much to draw out the conservative resonances of Burke's thought and action. Uh, Kirk first wrote about Edmund Burke in the summer of 1950 in a Queen's Quarterly article tellingly called, How Dead is Edmund Burke? <laughs> this is the same year that Lionel Trilling who, by the way, was, became a half-conservative himself uh, by the early 1970s, uh, and famously said Whitaker Chambers was a man of honor, but uh, referred to irritable gestures. Uh, and, of course, Kirk very much believed that Burke was relevant to addressing modern discontents. He often, uh, he had certain phrases he liked, uh, Eliot's, the permanent things, Burke's, the, the great phrase from Reflections on the Revolution in France, uh, on moral imagination. Uh, and by the way, so Kirk was part of this larger Burke revival. And I'm, I'm going to mention some figures that uh, students of Burke will remember. Ross J.S. Hoffman from uh, Fordham, Thomas Copeland, Father Francis Canavan, also of Fordham, Peter Stanless, who wrote a famous book on Burke and the Natural Law that was introduced by Kirk, and of course the sociologist Robert Nisbet. And Kirk was at the center of this Burkean constellation. I wouldn't exactly call Kirk a Burke scholar, but he was a learned and eloquent partisan of Burke's contribution to the sustenance and renewal of the conservative mind. And I was very struck rereading Kirk on Burke, how sparkling uh, some of his formulations are when he discusses Burke. Um, they're memorable and eminently quotable, and I think Kirk's contribution to the Burke revival is certainly one aspect of his work that will endure. My second epigram is a wonderful quote from Winston Churchill, who's a great admirer of uh, Burke. He published an essay in 1932 in his, his best collection of writings, uh, uh, Thoughts and Adventures, called Consistency in Politics. And uh, he gives us an example of true consistency of politics, remaining true to the same underlying and animating purpose, even as one addresses 
the great exigencies of practical life is Burke. He says, the Burke of liberty and the Burke of authority are the same man committed to the same principles. One thing I argue in my paper is that Russell Kirk, Russell Kirk affirms that same view. Burke was a liberal, he was a conservative, but that underlying his liberalism, his partisanship for the American revolutionaries, or at least for conciliation with America, for the rights of the besieged Catholics of Ireland, his, uh, his trial, 10 years, by the way, of Hastings, for his marauding and butchery in India as head of the East India Company. Uh, underlying his liberalism was conservatism, a hostility to innovation and a challenge to the moral patrimony of Western civilization. Um, and uh, Kirk, Kirk recognized, I think, that the foe of arbitrary power in Britain, America, and India was also that the same principles that had led him to be a critic of the crown, that led him to denounce this marauding and brutal war in Hastings, that led him to support conciliation in America, also led him to oppose uh, the armed doctrine that was Jacobinism, and even before Jacobinism, the political fanaticism that he saw undergirding the French Revolution. Um, it's very struck in rereading Kirk on Burke that um, Kirk suggests in the conservative mind that um, in all of his pursuits, Burke appealed to what Kirk calls the universal constitution of civilized peoples. This is maybe Kirk's version of natural law. Respect for tradition and inherited morality support for equality under God, but only under God, and perhaps the law, and fierce opposition to doctrinaire alteration of the rules of civilized existence. Kirk also talks about how Thomas Paine and Mirabeau, uh, you know, there were so many actors in the French Revolution, but Mirabeau was uh, one of the men of 1789 who became uh, quite radical in 1789, but a moderate and a defender of the king, by 1791. But both Paine in his letters to Burke and Mirabeau in his appeals in the National Assembly called for Burke to lead a movement for a revolution and popular sovereignty in Great Britain. They really mistook uh, Burke for a doctrinaire man wholly at home in the Enlightenment. This was a terrible mistake on their part because Burke would become their fiercest and most gifted rhetorical enemy. So like Churchill, Kirk appreciated that conservative ideas underlie even Burke's liberalism and his accompanying struggle with arbitrary power and all its forms. I go on in the next part of my paper to talk about Kirk's analysis of why Burke never made natural right or natural rights, the direct foundation of political life and political judgment. He famously dismisses the little catechism of the rights of man, which led to tyranny and terror in France. But Kirk does emphasize that if political judgment is mostly or exclusively circumstantial, uh, as Burke famously said in the letters to the sheriffs of Bristol in the 1770s, 
Prudence is the god of this world below. On the other hand, Kirk insisted that Burke was a defender of a traditional system of morals indebted to Aristotle, Cicero, the fathers of the church, Hooker, and Milton. Uh, in other words, there really is a moral constitution to human beings that has a more or less universal character. Now, as Kirk says, Burke claimed no originality in this regard, uh, but through his eloquence and fiery Irish spirit, and by the way, we Irish are very proud of Edmund Burke, you know, we have one... Uh, one man in the great pantheon of uh, political thought, I quote Kirk, he put new warmth into their phrases so that their eyes flamed above the Jacobin torches. Very nice phrase from the conservative mind. Um, so I think uh, if you look closely at Kirk's writings on Burke, you'll see that in this limited sense, Burke's politics of prudence perfectly coheres with the natural law understood as moral verities that largely transcend historical change and cultural variation. So for Kirk, Burke is both a partisan of prudence, by the way, not to be confused with fearful timidity, or I love this phrase from the letters on a regicide piece, false reptile prudence. <laughs> um, <laughs> And by the way, Kirk also insisted that Burke added a note of Christian humility before the moral inheritance, which is among the great gifts of classical and Christian civilization. Seems to me Kirk made a couple of additional contributions to Burke's studies, both of some significance. Today, consent is everything. Choice is everything. But Kirk, following Burke, insisted on the role of limits in human and political life. He was a critic of social contract theorizing. They both were. Choice and consent play some legitimate role in politics, guided by humane and prudent judgment, but they should never obscure our obligatory duties that are not a matter of choice. And Kirk liked to quote Burke from the appeal from the new to the old Whigs about the burdensome duties that parents, citizens, neighbors, and children all are obliged to carry out with grace and a sense of responsibility. So choice plays some role in politics, and Burke added in marriage, at least in the Christian West, but it cannot be the basis of every aspect of life. And of course, this is very countercultural. Duty is as fundamental as consent. How this works in a rights-obsessed world or rights-obsessed America is another matter. Kirk stresses the multiple ways in which Burke's conservative liberalism was decidedly unlocking. Coming back to one of Rogers' themes, while defending the rights of property, Burke never believed that civil society arose from a pre-political state of nature. Men and women are not truly born free and independent, and the only true social contract, these very famous words from the Reflections, is between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. Compare that to Thomas Jefferson, who wanted uh, a constitutional revision every 13 years. 
by the way, wisely opposed by Madison and Federalist Number 49, where he talks about the importance of reverence and veneration for the Constitution, a rare Burkean note in the Federalist Papers. So this is the great primeval contract that Burke so eloquently invokes in the Reflections. In the quarrel of the ancients and moderns, Burke sides with the classics and Christians against full-blown modern individualism. Kirk talks quite a bit about the famous remark of Burke in uh, the Reflections that the Christian West, the, the twin pillars of the Christian West were the spirit of the gentleman and the spirit of religion. And I argue, obviously, we cannot immediately recover a civilization where the spirit of the gentleman and the spirit of religion are the explicit foundations of free society. But I note that Harvey Mansfield, who's also a Burke scholar, has compellingly argued that all the substitutes, all the modern substitutes for the gentleman, the bureaucrat, the technician, and the ideologue, are no substitute for the noblesse oblige and humane and prudent judgment of the gentleman at its very best. Talking about loss, you know, when we read Burke and Kirk on Burke, we immediately become aware of what has been lost in this movement toward an exclusively modern and rights-obsessed politics. Last part of my paper, I raised some reflections about Burke in America. Kirk was a little defensive on a very common charge I hear from my Claremont friends. You know, Burke is un-American. You know, American conservatism has to be based on the founding in Lincoln, and Burke is an exotic import. Well, Kirk's response was, I quote from his 1967 biography of Burke, that to seek political wisdom from Burke is no more exotic for Americans than it is to seek humane insights from Shakespeare or spiritual insights from St. Paul, um, which I think is absolutely the case. Although, I would also add, there is something vaguely un-American about Burke. I don't mean that as a condemnation or criticism, but we are a rights-obsessed people and a political doctrine that exalts, in a very noble way, prejudice, presumption, and prescription is going to have an uneasy place in the political and intellectual character of the American people. Uh, by the way, Kirk is very, very good on the relevance of Burke to the age of ideology. Burke famously in the letters on the Regicide Peace denounces arm doctrine. He has beautiful passages about how the Jacobins subdued authentic individuality through coercion, and through proselytism of the mind. So he really was a prophet of the, of the coming of totalitarianism because the French Revolution, as Kirk noted, had many important and decisive proto-totalitarian elements. But Kirk also said he hoped that we could get beyond the relevance of Burke as a critic of ideological politics or utopian fanaticism to return to his deeper insights about the centrality of veneration at the heart of civilized order. And that's an interesting question, whether 
a free people in a quasi-Lockean nation are capable of affirming individually and collectively moral goods such as veneration and gratitude. Bertrand de Juvenal, who I once wrote a book on, has a beautiful line in his book, Sovereignty. The wise man knows himself for debtor. Well, modern man does not know himself for debtor. He, he repudiates the past, the, the great primeval contract of the dead, the living and the yet to be born. We believe in the primacy of the present and the future, the Moloch of the future. I quote another admirer of Burke, Roger Scruton, Burke is the wisest and most lucid critic of the unscrupulous belief in the future that has dominated and perverted modern politics. Two final notes. Kirk has a wonderful discussion in uh, his bio 67 biography of Burke of a famous remark of Leo Strauss in the final chapter on Burke in Natural Right and History, another book that came out in 1953. And Strauss, by the way, was I think a great admirer of Burke as a critic of ideological politics, as, a, as the great partisan of classical wisdom and political prudence in the modern world. But at one point he says, based on one passage and thoughts on French affairs about whether it would be perverse to resist a pattern in, in politics that seems to be overwhelming and universal, uh, that Burke did not sufficiently appreciate the dignity of last-ditch resistance going down with flags flying and guns blazing. To which Kirk, who I think respected Strauss, although I don't think he liked Straussians, he said that he humbly had to object that Burke was the last ditch resistance of the 1790s. I think it's, a, it's an excellent retort. You cannot read something like the letters on Regicide Peace and not see that Kirk played, as I say in my paper, the same role in resisting Jacobinism that somebody like Solzhenitsyn played in the resistance to communist totalitarianism in the 20th century. So I conclude that like the proverbial Homer, Leo Strauss nodded on that occasion in Natural Right History. I end my paper by quoting a surprising remark in the chapter on Tocqueville and the conservative mind. In a little notice passage in the conservative mind section on Tocqueville, Kirk argues that Tocqueville excels his philosophical master Burke in one crucial respect. In democracy in America, the great French statesman and thinker gave, quote, an impartial examination of the new order, democracy, which Burke never had time or patience to undertake, unquote. Kirk may be going too far in stating that modern democracy had already, quote, taken distinct form before Burke's death. I think it was clearly emerging. Kirk thus prudently concedes that Burkean wisdom must adopt to a democratic world with which Burke had never fully come to terms. This is a most striking concession on Kirk's part about the need for admirers of Burke to bring his old and enduring wisdom to a democratic world that he did not truly inhabit or explore. Of course, this has nothing to do with capitulation to the forces of radical democracy. So I'll read you the last line of my paper. May the wisdom of Burke is mediated by Kirk long endure. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you, Dan. Thank you. I thought maybe we would see if there are any comments, questions, animadversions on the part of the panel. The other Dan. Well, uh, Dan, in discussing uh, this difference of opinion about Burke uh, between Strauss and Russell Kirk, I think you, you've brought up something very interesting because, on the one hand, it could be said that Strauss is giving an uncharitable reading to what Burke uh, actually says. Burke, at the end, uh, as I recall, of Thoughts on French Affairs, he says, yes, um, that you know someone might be seen as perverse and obstinate if they're standing against what we would now say is uh, sort of the inevitable wave of the future, the right side of history. I mean, he doesn't use that phrase, but it's clearly the same concept that we're now dealing with today. But it seems to me that Burke, when he, when he writes this, he's not being literal. He's not saying that, therefore, this is true. He's actually sort of reflecting on his own position in British affairs at this point. He has been uh, singled out as being perhaps – because a lot of his countrymen thought he was too hard on the French Revolution. They thought that he was too intransigent. And so he was saying, you know, maybe this is the way I'm going to be seen by history. And he's phrasing it in a sort of ironic way. Um, he doesn't think that this is the truth. It's rather this is the way that perception might, uh, might cash out. And when you, when you mentioned that Kirk has uh, disagreed with Strauss's interpretation here, my first thought was to agree with you that Kirk is correct and Strauss is, has nodded here. But then I, I thought perhaps uh, is there a subtlety to what Strauss is saying when he looks at this passage, is it that not that Strauss thinks that Burke really has simply given in to the other side or said that you know you can't resist historical inevitability, but rather that Strauss is perhaps alarmed by the idea that Burke would have even a momentary sense of basically that he's going into a last ditch affair, he's going to he's going to lose this suicide run, and he therefore feels a little bit sad. And maybe Strauss is saying displaying this sadness, letting it show through that you feel a little bit wounded by your public perception is perhaps a little bit unmanly or a little bit ungentlemanly. And this may be what Strauss is truly objecting to in Burke rather than the idea that Burke is actually surrendering. You know, uh, there was a um, conference at the New School for Social Research in 1973 when Leo Strauss died and one of his colleagues, another European emigre, Eric Hula, said that all Strauss did during the Second World War was run around quoting Burke and Churchill, you know, which seemed appropriate, you know, the spirit of resistance. I think Strauss was a great admirer of Burke, but he was worried that conservatives would, if I can put it this way, radicalize Burke in a historicist direction and would appeal not so much to natural justice or even to the politics of prudence, but toward a sense of, of uh, history, and that he was worried that there was more common ground between this decayed or vulgarized Burkeanism and Hegelian Marxism that, con that most conservatives appreciated. Yes, and I think, though, uh, I think Kirk is right, because to take one remark where Burke is speculating, I think you're quite right out loud, about whether or not there's something forlorn about his militant opposition to the spirit of Jacobinism and sort of to extrapolate the idea that Burke, in the end, I think Strauss says he comes close hmm. to conceding that, this, uh, that there might be something obstinate and therefore ill-advised about resistance to these overpowering currents. So his, his, word, his language is quite nuanced, but nonetheless, I think it's unfair to Burke. I think Kirk is right that 
Burke, you know, look, when Burke died in 1797, it's an unmarked grave. He's absolutely convinced that if the Jacobins come to England, they will disinter his body and desecrate it. And he never really, I think, equivocated that this was a monstrous assault on civilization and the politics of prudence that had to be adamantly resisted. Jim and then Ken. So on this last ditch resistance, yeah. the other great book of this period was uh, witnessed by Whitaker Chambers. So, and Chambers, of course, thought that he was leaving the winning side for the losing side. So you do have the Cold War element here as a backdrop to uh, Burke's book in 1953. The rival, really, to Kirk's vision was Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. Hayek almost became the dominant thinker on the American right in that period. I think the ISI, can you correct me if I'm wrong, was founded as the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists. Correct. So Hayek framed the issue of individualism versus collectivism, and Kirk framed it as something else, civilization versus ideology or tyranny. And in the end, it was, I think, it was Kirk's vision of conservatism that kind of carried the day not the Hayek vision of conservatism. Now, of course, you did have fusionism and all the rest. So maybe a comment on, on the Cold War background to the whole thing. Well, I think that's right. I think that's in the, certainly in the backdrop of Strauss's discussion of guns blazing and flags flying. That uh, He talks about the restoration, the memory could help sustain the cause of civilization, even if it went under, so that there's a long-term efficacy to last-ditch resistance yeah, you know, I remember Jack Kemp. Of, uh, we all remember Jack Kemp. Jack Kemp, one of his lines he used to do in his stump speeches was, Whitaker Chambers was wrong. Mm. You know, the West has survived. It's defeated collectivism. I think what Jack Kemp never understood is Whitaker Chambers' fear. You see this in his posthumous book called Friday from 1964. It wasn't against the possibility the West would win the Cold War. He wondered whether the West that survived would be spiritually desiccated, that it would share many of the materialist premises of our enemies, etc. And he may not have been wrong about that, that our civilization, this is a great problem for us conservatives, we're patriots, which is a wonderful thing. We ought to be patriots of the best of America. But in decisive respects, our civilization is waning and our republic is less morally estimable than it used to be. You know, it's estranged from the best insights of our own tradition. So uh, I think it's complicated, and brought up Jack Kemp because I think he, he really failed to see the deeper resonances of Chambers' message, was that there was a disease that was eating away at our civilized inheritance, and you know, the Soviet Union may go, communist totalitarianism may go, but that's not the same as reviving and sustaining the best spiritual traditions of the West. Yes, uh, Stormy Daniels was, was unavailable today, but, but we have Ken Crip. <laughs> I talked to Dan about this last night. I was wondering um, whether he would get in his uh, exfoliation of the prudence 
uh, the politics of prudence, the Tory-Whig distinction, and he does in an important sense. That is, he emphasizes the underlying uh, moral, civilizational context in which Burke's politics operate. And I think, Dan, you're so accurate when you use the phrase that, that Burke is the principal source of Kirk's political wisdom. And I think maybe that's where that distinction's interesting. Because, of course, Kirk knows the same things you know and that I know about Burke, and yet he still called himself a Tory. And they, so there's something there. There's something there. And I was, I've always been interested in the question, and I, to try to think about it a little bit, uh, you know, from 250 years' perspective, we can see the Tory and the Whig positions fairly close on the continuum of left-right. Uh, but of course, in those days, it was a, a clash, the clash of titans. This was a struggle for the, you know, control of the whole British polity. There are obviously these this differences were hard fought, and I think the difference, at least that's important for us in talking about Kirk and Burke, and the politics of prudence, is perhaps the relative importance those two positions would assign to man's relation to the state. What might be termed, and Kirk didn't use this phrase, the Whig mistake is to take man's relation to the state as important as it is and, and magnify it to the exclusion of other just as important questions so that it, in context it becomes a false position. I've always been interested when we were talking about last night about Kirk and interactions with him personally. Whenever he talked about political order, he would use the word tolerable. Have you noticed that? Tolerable political order. Um, in, I was interested to find later that actually that fits it right there in the, in the conscience of conservative when he's describing how he would like to see politics work out. He's still, in writing, also uses the same phrase. So it's important to him. That was a key word for him. Why? Well, it may be because as a Tory and assigning the importance of politics in a more confined way, it's okay that it's tolerable. Because then you can get to the real work of life. You have a tolerable political order dictated by prudence, consonant with the natural law, but then there are those permanent things that have very little to do with that question. Those permanent things that occupy the center of the human soul. And I would say that, for example, we can align to an example of high Toryism, and I've discussed this passage with Dr. Kerr, which is Johnson's phrases. It's in Goldsmith's poem, The Traveler. But of course, but these were lines we know that were contributed with Dr. Johnson. That was known even by the time of the Boswell biography. So there's no really no question about it because Johnson was still alive and, and he assented to that. And it's these lines, and it's a couplet. I'll say it twice because the syntax is difficult. How small of all that human hearts endure, that part which laws or kings can cause or cure. How small, how small of the, look at your own heart, look at our own hearts. So Kirk looks to his own heart and we look in our own hearts and we see that this whole question of politics should not devour us. And uh, that may be why Kirk remained obstinately self-identified as a Tory. Just a quick word or two on the Whig-Tory thing. Um, you know, Burke was uh, a, a Whig in important respects. He fought the uh, court party, massive corruption, promoted the economical reforms. 
the pre-French Revolutionary Whigs were sort of, they were suspicious of excessive imperial activities abroad in India and the Americas. So, uh, but of course he wrote the appeal f- uh, to the, the uh, new Whigs from the old, you know, what the Whig Party became with Fox as at least enthusiasts for the French Revolution in 1789-1790, he repudiated. As I tried to bring out in my paper, I think one of Kirk's great insights was that um, underlying Burke's conservatism was a deeper moral, uh, liberalism was a deeper moral conservatism. I think you might go a little, maybe it's true of Kirk, but I think Burke was a great defender of the dignity of the political vocation, which is not the same thing as the hyper-politicization of every aspect of life. But politics is a very high vocation, and Burke was a great statesman, and he was a great defender of the integrity of the political order, which he distinguished from what we would call ideology or armed doctrine. So the quote from Samuel Johnson doesn't capture the whole truth. No. But it's a good correction to the desire to hyper-politicize every aspect of life. There I would completely agree with you. I agree with your modulation of that. I mean, I think, I think really it is just a counter weight. And, but those distinctions are important, and for some reason Kirk thought it important to maintain them, and I think these insights are, are part of, of why he sought to maintain them. Brian, then Jeff, and then James. Well, this is just to follow up. Jim Pearson mentioned fusionism. And I wonder, either Dan Mahoney or Dan McCarthy, what you think of the debate that broke out after The Conservative Mind was published when Frank Meyer criticized Kirk very heavily for relying primarily on sensibility or tone rather than principle. What do you think of that critique? And, you know, that that's really run through the whole uh, current of conservatism during that era. I think Meyer was too much of a doctrinaire, too libertarian, or confused classical liberalism with libertarianism. You know, uh, Richard Weaver in The Ethics of Rhetoric made the same critique of Burke that he relied too much on disposition and not on principle. And the irony is, or paradox is, we have uh, Richard Weaver, the author of The Southern Tradition at Bay, presenting Lincoln as the model principled statesman and Burke as the utilitarian who doesn't appreciate the role of principle in politics. I don't think that's right. I do think Meyer did play an important role, and I don't think Meyer is a deep thinker, but I do think he played an important role in showing American conservatives that some integration of civilizational conservatism and classical liberalism was a necessity intellectually and politically. But I think Meyer's critique of Kirk and Burke is ultimately ina- inaccurate and unfair. Thank you. Yeah, just two quick comments. One is I recall Kirk says a tolerable order, that is the term he uses, um, is one where right, you're, you're kind of best people, your most creative people, their ambitions are given free reign so they can do their thing. And the other people who just want to be left alone are protected from the ambitions of the creative people and, and, and so forth. And I always thought that's kind of an interesting way of thinking about things. Part of thinking about Kirk and, and Burke on these issues is that they're both living at times when they see things falling apart. I mean, this is Witness also, this is Chambers also. It's a dispositional thing, right? You see the world kind of falling apart around you, the things that you love being hacked at by the revolutionaries, and you're in a protective mode. Kirk talks about this quite a bit, that a gentleman is a guy who's going to defend things, right? Somebody's coming after something you love. 
uh, you're going to defend it. And you know, there, you do get into these sort of civilizational moods or something like that, right? Where everything seems to be falling apart. The stuff you love seems to be attenuating or vacating in some kind of fashion. And you can't despair, right? I mean, that's the trick is always how do you find counsel against despair in these sorts of situations? And you know, what kind of resources can you draw upon to engage in your resistance against this stuff? And there is a sense at times when the problems seem so big and your own contributions seem so minimal that it becomes easy, I think, to despair about this a little bit. And part of the Burke stuff is a way of Kirk saying, yeah, I mean, people have been through this before. And we're still reading Edmund Burke, you know, 200 years later to our own advantage. Because in part, people are witness, what Richard Hooker says in the ecclesial polity, right? I mean, in part, you're witnessing to these things, right? That when, when all this is being taken apart around you, at least you're witnessing to a higher truth. And I think that's that, you know, part of that appeal there. I was going to say, uh, Eric Vogelin had a remark about uh, we don't have to mirror the disorder of our times in our own souls. And I think Kirk, in his own way, agreed with that, that there may be a crisis of the West or crisis of civilization, but it's possible for us to resist that in our own souls. And that, that I think, is, a, that is not a counsel of despair. That's a counsel of... Uh, or it reminds us that there's a kind of free response of the human being, that we can, we can resist the allure and temptation of ideology. James. Thank you. Reflecting on revolution... Uh, one way that I think Kirk could seem idiosyncratic, not to himself, but to American conservatism, was his somewhat isolationist views. He was against the first Gulf War. Uh, he was against the bombing of Japan, even though that might have seemed the prudent way to end the war. I wonder if he saw eye to eye with Burke on the American Revolution. Well, on the foreign policy stuff, I think it's important to note Kirk was a Cold Warrior in the sense that for the length of the Cold War, he supported a strong anti-totalitarian foreign policy. But afterwards, I think he thought things had changed and we needed to mind our business more. And he was an early critic of democracy promotion. And that's perfectly in accord with his Burkeanism and everything else. On the American Revolution, you know, Kirk was a great, unlike some paleoconservatives who seemed to be deeply ambivalent about America. He was a great American patriot and a great defender of the founding, but he did give a kind of Burkean twist to the founding. So he saw our political order in great continuity with English constitutionalism. He, uh, I think the Declaration of Independence made him a little nervous. Maybe it was too excessively universalist. I don't think he was an admirer of Jefferson, but on the whole, he defended the American Revolution precisely for not being a modern ideological revolution. In other words, its purpose was not to transform human nature and society in a stroke. Its purpose, as I always say to my students, we don't have a year zero in the United States. You know, we don't have the... 18th of Brumaire, you know, or the 9th of Thermidor. We have a Christian calendar. We used to have the year of the Lord. Now it's the Christian era. You know, we've de-Christianized our self-consciousness. But anyway, I think Burke wanted to emphasize that the American Revolution stood apart, 
in its rejection of the ideological impulse. Now, other people have countered, I think, Hannah Arendt's argument, America was the only one who had a real revolution, because it was a political revolution, and it gave rise to political freedom, and all the other modern revolutions were ideological revolutions that were really closer to metaphysical rebellion. That's an interesting argument, too. It's worth having. But Burke, I think, was a partisan of the American cause, but he understood it in terms of its great continuity with the larger tradition of Western civilization. Could I just uh, intervene there? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, Kirk would frequently quote with approval the phrase, with regard to the revolution, a revolution not made but prevented. Yes. He thought the problem we had was, how do you have English liberties without the king? The English liberties came in a historical context, the historical context being the English Constitution. We had a revolution. We lose the English Constitution, ipso facto. So the problem is, how do you have English liberties without the king? And he liked the way that our Constitution affirmed that. Now, he would joke. He would, in jest, he would say, I'm the only true pacifist in America because I was against every war we've ever fought, including the war of the revolution right. and the right. war between the states. <laughs> but it, it was more than just. He, I, I agree with Dan about that. Yes, it, it, he looked at the founding not as the new order of the ages, but as the institution of English liberties without the king. Look at the roots of American order. He has all these famous cities that culminate in Philadelphia, but it's Athens, it's Rome, it's London, it's What's that? Jerusalem. 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 So it's civilizational continuity. Right. Mm -hmm. Where the embassy is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mark. <laughs> um, Dan, I think I disagree with you on your interpretation of Chambers. I do think that he meant it, <laughs> the losing side. And I do think that one of the most electric parts of being a conservative movement person during the Cold War was precisely the Chambers thought, that you were joining the losing side and you would fight to the death, kind of knowing that you would lose. And so it's sort of Theoden in The Lord of the Rings when, he, you know, you're, you're, yes, we're going to lose, but our defeat will be worth a song. And that was a, it ensouled you in a certain way, and, and therefore the most extraordinary thing of my life was that we won. And one of the great ironies of that is that the conservative movement, instead of rejecting the notion of historical inevitabilities, instead latched on to the flip side, its historical inevitability, that, oh, it turns out actually communism wasn't historically inevitable, liberal democracy is historically inevitable, and that's us. <laughs> and so we can now be the vanguard party of, the, of this revolution going forward. And so, in fact, the Burkean lesson that could have been learned, that the activity of Ronald Reagan in choosing to oppose the apparently historically inevitable revealed that it wasn't historically inevitable, was not chosen. So the, the, the prudent actions of Reagan, Thatcher, etc., were the lesson that ought to have been learned that we didn't. But that's not actually what I wanted to say. What, it, what, I, wanted to, <laughs> what I wanted to draw attention to was the... You would be silenced at a Liberty Fund conference. I wanted to draw attention to the, the curiosity that Burke was Kirk's guy. And Burke is up to his, you know, fingertips in politics, right? Every, yeah. Everything is, he is a political man. Yeah. I mean, he's a party manager. He's and he's of, the theoretician of politics. Yeah, and, he, and he's, he's about politics. He actually doesn't speak all that much most of the time until the revolution. 
about anything other than politics and political positions. And Kirk, then, is not a politician. He is, in fact, you know, like the, the icon of the closeted intellectual uh, up in Macosta. And he points to, perpetually, to things other than politics that matter most, as, uh, as in Ken's couplet. And so I think that that's, there, there's a kind of an irony there that's not adequately observed, that Kirk is focusing on, unlike Burke, is focusing on something else. And he obviously isn't a new Edmund Burke. He's a literary figure. He knows he's a man of letters. That's what he does. And so his intervention is at that level and not actually in politics. And again, picking up on uh, Jim Pearson, there was a lot up for grabs in 1953. What became the conservative movement could have gone in many, many directions. And I think one of the insights into the 50s prolegomenon of the conservative movement is a letter that Kirk wrote when Victor Milioni of the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists invited him to join the academic board in about 1960. And apparently Vic Milioni said, you know, would you join our board? Our, our intercollegiate society of individualists is governed by, you know, or, you know, is oriented to these intellectual authorities and we want you to be with us. And Kirk wrote back saying, absolutely not. I will not join the, any advisory board of anything called the intercollegiate society of individualists. I abhor individualism. You know, it's a hideous solitude and I'm a person, not an individual. And he then has this remarkable passage about the list of intellectual authorities that Milioni had Crawford, and he said that he might join something if you had a different list of intellectuals. And if you had, for example, Moses in place of Lao Tzu, Aristotle in place of Zeno, Pascal in place of Spinoza, Lord Falkland in place of John Locke, Dante in place of Milton, Sam Johnson in place of Adam Smith, Ruskin in place of Mill, Burke in place of Paine, Adams in place of Jefferson, James Fitzjames Stephen in place of Herbert Spencer, Hawthorne in place of Thoreau, Orestes Brownson in place of Emerson. And what's interesting to me in all of this, I mean, like, look at the list. I knew Vic Milioni, and, and the list of what he thought was sort of the, what our governing authorities were. I mean, really? Herbert Spencer and, uh, and, and, and Zeno? Uh, so the, so there, there was a lot up for grabs. So this, this is showing us what could have been. And the thing that could have been the conservative intellectual movement would have been kind of an acerbic, skeptical, cynical, disdainful tradition of biting criticism of society from a bunch of people who were very far from it and lordly over it. And instead, it became something that really had an authentic connection to the American life and culture. And I think that the one of the again an irony is that Kirk, who's often said to be the you know un-American guy in the conservative intellectual pantheon, it was actually closer in many ways to actual America, and his list of authorities sort of has more traction than this kind of weird eccentric list that was also on offer at the time. Remember the very American Teddy Roosevelt called Payne a dirty little atheist. If I might add a footnote to uh, Mark Henry's uh, comment there, 
you know, it is a surprising list coming from Vic Milioni. The context, of course, was that at the time, ISI still did have that Frank Chodorov, yeah. and um, and even even Bill Buckley himself, I think, was probably uh, more favorably disposed towards one side of that list than the other. And so it was not necessarily Milioni's own view, but that of um, the other uh, figures who had helped found the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists, as it was at the time. And uh, Kirk's letter actually gets warmer in other places, as I recall. He does say that, um, you know, he likes some of the work that even uh, ISI of that time is doing. He simply thinks that the name is incorrect and the genealogy is incorrect. Um, I will add a uh, certain uh, ironic footnote here. So Vic Milioni was personally very much on the traditionalist side of things, very, very much so. And I think he was probably, already that was maybe the case when Kirk sent him that letter. And that letter probably further pushed Milioni towards the traditionalist side of things. I knew Vic Milioni just briefly towards the end of his life uh, in the year 2007. And Milioni had a quote that had stuck in his mind. And I forget what the quote was, but it was an interesting observation about society. And he asked uh, everyone at ISI if they could help him trace down the quote. He was sure that it came from Tocqueville. But it might have been Tocqueville, it might have been Burke. Well, Google was fairly new at the time, especially Google's uh, book search feature. But I put the quote in there and, you know, looked around a bit, looked for variations of the quote. I eventually found it. It turned out to be a quote from Herbert Spencer. Oh my so, God. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know if I ever told Vic that because I knew it would break his heart. Oh so. <laughs> By the way, there's this terrible quote that goes back to Eisenhower about America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. And something like a hundred politicians and seven presidents have given speeches attributing this to Tocqueville. Anyone who has ever read Tocqueville knows that is not how Tocqueville expresses himself. So, have you, have you told Hillary Clinton this? Or? Hillary doesn't take my calls. So. <laughs>